Well, Cal mentioned that it's football season. Not going to talk about that. Some of you may have noticed it's also election season. Has been for the last year and a half, right? And, you know, I find that our nation is, I think, largely in a place of being deeply divided over issues, deeply disillusioned by the corruption and the lies that emanate from the highest echelons in our government, and deeply disappointed in the candidates that are being offered for office. This is nothing new for America, I guess, or any society. In fact, Solomon, back in 950 BC, penned these words, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Do I hear any groaning out there? Politics dominates the news, and yet some are oblivious to what's going on. Some are absolutely obsessed by this political circus. So what's a Christian to do? I want us to consider an encounter that Jesus had with some politicized religious leaders in his day in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. And I believe that this encounter, and Jesus' answer in particular, provides some hope and some help for us as we consider how to navigate the waters that we find ourselves in, the chaotic interplay between God and government. But before we get to the passage, I want to set it in context because I believe the timing of this encounter and the events that led up to it are significant. The previous Sunday, Jesus has come into Jerusalem, concluding his ministry, three and a half years. He comes in on the, the colt of a donkey, and the crowds come out, and they are taking palm branches and their garments, and they're laying down, strewing the road in front of him, and they're shouting, Hosanna! The Lord saves, Hosanna to the King. Because they believed that here, finally, was the King that had been promised that would evict the Roman oppressors who had occupied their land and establish his earthly kingdom. Jesus gets into Jerusalem. He goes up into the temple courts, looks around. He goes back to Bethany that evening to spend time with his friends. And then he comes back into the city the next day and up into the temple courts where he flips over the tables of the money changers and those selling animals for sacrifice at exploitive rates and throws them out of the temple. He cleanses the temple. And then he begins through that week to continue his teaching ministry. And one of the parables that he shares is about the vineyard. And the Jewish people were familiar with that analogy because in, for instance, Psalm 80, God said that Israel was his vineyard and they were to tend and care for his vineyard. But in Jesus' story, when he tells about the vineyard, he said a master had a vineyard and uh, he entrusted it to his servants and he went away on a long journey and then he would send representatives to receive the produce from the vineyard. But the servants... They beat one of these representatives, they, they stoned another, and then finally he sent his son, and they killed him. That was the story Jesus told that led to this encounter. Let's pick it up in verse 19, where we read, The scribes and chief priests 
tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to, for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription is on it. They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now I want to, from this conversation, and in particular from Jesus' answer, set forth some principles for you to consider. They're outlined in your bulletin. Here's the first. When it comes to God and government, we sometimes come to Jesus appearing to want his opinion, but entrenched in our own position. That's where these religious leaders were, and that's where the spies that they sent to ask the question were. Back in verse 20, it says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order they might catch him in some statement so that they had an agenda. They could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. Who were these spies? Luke doesn't specifically identify them, but Matthew and Mark do. These spies that came were comprised of Pharisees and Herodians. Now that's really interesting because they were of two distinct parties. They didn't even like each other. They did not have the same goals. I mean, the Pharisees, they were the ones who had separated themselves. That's what Pharisee meant, to keep the law of Moses. And they wanted nothing to do with the Sadducees who had kind of bought into uh, the Roman occupation and everything. No, they were separatists. And they would align themselves more with the zealots over there. The Herodians, on the other hand, and you can tell, they were aligned with King Herod, who was appointed by Rome over them because they thought, oh, if we cozy up to him, if we hang out with Herod, it's going to be okay. We're going to be taken care of, and we'll have some power in the process. I mean, if we were to bring it up into the 21st century, these groups and equivalent, maybe for this election possibly, I mean... The Herodians would say, if you like the way things are going, just keep going with Herod here. Whereas the Pharisees were saying, hey, we want to evict the Romans and build a wall. Well, they were from distinct parties for sure, but they found common ground. They were both co-belligerents against Jesus because each of these groups wanted to get rid of Jesus, and so they come together and it says, they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you're partial, not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. They really didn't believe that. But then they asked the question, Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's a familiar story. We're, we're aware of that one. And we realize it's a trap. Because if he would have said, Yes, go ahead and pay your taxes, I mean they knew that many of his followers would probably abandon him. 
because the Jewish people hated the Roman oppression and occupation. And, and they were hoping that Jesus were, would establish a kingdom and get rid of them. But if he said, no, don't pay your taxes, they knew that Rome would come down on him immediately and crush him. Now, I learned something from Tim Keller this last week, an insight, in fact, a few that I'll weave into this message. But one of them was, historically, just five years earlier, this tax had been instituted by Caesar, and a different Caesar, and uh, the point of the tax, it wasn't so oppressive. It was only a denarius per person. It was a head tax, which was the equivalent of a peasant's day's wages. But the point was just to remind them that Caesar was in control, had authority, and that they could pay this tax for the privilege of being his subject. Well, there was a fellow by the name of Judas of Galilee who formed a band, an armed band, and objected to this, and he, he instituted an insurrection. They went into the temple, and they cleansed the temple. They threw out the images that were in there and the foreigners that were in there, and then he said to them, let's usher in the kingdom of God. No more Rome. We're going to usher in the kingdom of God. And then he told his followers, don't pay this tax. Refuse to pay this tax to Caesar. That was just 25 years earlier. And now here comes Jesus. And he, for some years now, has been talking about the kingdom of God is at hand. Ushering in the kingdom of God. Now, a few days earlier, he cleanses the temple. And so they come to him and say, so what about the tax? That's the third point of Judas of Galilee's uh, features. And by the way, Rome had come in on Judas of the Galilean, captured his band, and executed him. These people knew all that. That wasn't that long ago. Think about it. I mean, 25 years ago, Bill Clinton was in office. And we remember some of the events of that. Well, they would have remembered that, Judas of Galilee as well. And so they thought they had Jesus on the horns of a dilemma where he was going to lose this crowd or lose his life in that situation. And they really wanted just a simple yes or no. Is it lawful or not? They asked him one question, and uh, Jesus countered with two, which we'll get to in a moment. But I wanted to mention that sometimes we want things to be simple. We want uh, questions that we have about politics or government to just have clear choices and, and be so easy. And sometimes we think they are. But actually, I think a lot of times it's a lot murkier and complex than we really know. Jesus refused to offer simplicity here. The truth is, when it comes to political parties, there's no absolutely right party. In fact, there's no political party that is without corruption, power, uh, quest for power, greed, and uh, some backroom dealings. I mean, I go to the primary election and uh, look at the ballot, and it's got, okay, here's Democrats and Republicans, there's Libertarians, there's the Green Party, and there's the American Shopping Party. Did you guys notice that? The American Shopping Party. And I'm like, what is that? So I had to go home and Google. I didn't really choose a candidate from there. I went and Googled it, and it's like they're a one-issue party. 
Vote American. Okay. I shared this, uh, the, the name of the party with the gals in the office, and they were all excited. They were all for that party. They thought they might join. Shop till you drop, you know. Well, it's sometimes good to laugh about some of the political endeavors that are happening around us, but it's really important for us to remain humble. Whatever our positions, if we have an affiliation with a party or if we support a particular candidate, realizing that none of them are perfect, there's flaws, and none of them have all the answers or what is needed. And when we come to Jesus, like these guys came to Jesus, we need to come without an agenda, without a, a motive to get him to just support us where we're already at, but sincerely looking to him for wisdom and guidance uh, in the political scheme of things. Secondly, when it comes to God and government, we err as citizens if we evade our responsibility or if we make politics our first priority. So they asked this question of Jesus, but he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a den denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's the first part of his answer, you know. And it appears that he's saying, yes, go ahead and pay taxes. But that's not the end of it. He qualified that answer, you know. But he really asked them, two questions in response to their question. Whose likeness is on it and whose inscription is on it? Got a picture here of a denarius, the front and back of it. Yes, that's uh, Tiberius Caesar's likeness, and that's his mother on the back, so-called Queen of Heaven. But the inscription on it is really interesting. It literally said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Pontifus Maximus. You could really translate that, king, son of God, high priest. Now that may sound familiar. So how did Jesus respond when they handed him that denarius? Did he say, don't even touch this thing. This is blasphemous. No, he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give what belongs to Caesar to him. Render is an interesting word. He actually changed the verb. It means pay back what you owe. I mean, he acknowledged this is Caesar's coin. It's got his image on it. It's got his inscription on it. He minted it. He distributed it. It came from his treasury. Go ahead and pay it if you owe it. And that's a tax. And the implication, I believe, from Jesus is that we're obligated to obey government with limitations. And we'll get to that in a moment. And involvement can God's people be involved? Should they be involved in something so murky and corrupt as politics and government? Well, if you look in the Bible, the answer seems to be, yeah, absolutely, that's an option. For instance, in the Old Testament, I mean, you see Deborah as a leader politically in her nation, the nation of Israel, and all the kings and all those who are involved politically in the nation of, politically in the nation of Israel. But... You even see them involved in the governments of other nations. Look at Joseph down in Egypt, or Daniel in Babylon, and then Persia, and then later Nehemiah serving the Persian king before he comes back to Israel. By the time you get to the New Testament, we're exhorted to pray for those who govern us, those who are in authority, 
to submit to them and to pay taxes. Well, but what if the IRS is corrupt and has been politicized? Well, you think it wasn't in, in uh, Jesus' day? It certainly would have been. Governments are ordained of God to restrain evil, to preserve order, and to promote justice. To restrain evil, to preserve order, and to promote justice. Now, we live, interestingly, in the scope of history in a fascinating time. We're in a democracy. So who's the government? We, the people, form the government. And the people we vote for, they're our representatives. So if we don't get involved, if we don't vote, if we're not aware of what's happening, haven't we abdicated our responsibility to govern and to set forth right laws that would lead our nation in the ways that God would want us to go? I believe that there is a possibility of erring on one extreme or the other. And both existed in Jesus' day. One option is just drop out, not care, be uninformed, detached from anything politically. And that's what happened with the Essenes. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls where they're the ones that preserved them because they were living in that Qumran community down by the shores of the Dead Sea. And they had just withdrawn into the desert because they wanted nothing to do with politics or Rome or everyday life like that. They isolated themselves. And, and there are people that do that today. I mean, there are groups that do that too. I don't want to pick on them, but the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, they want nothing to do with government. That's an example. There are other groups like that. Won't pledge allegiance to this nation or anything. I mean, in the Christian church, back in the early 1900s, uh, there was a big split between the mainline denominations and the fundamentalists who came over here and said, we're, we're going to not have anything to do with politics. We're, we're going to be about preaching the gospel and saving souls, and we're not going to touch anything politically. And so that became their focus. And there are many today who say, well, yeah, as a Christian, I can't have anything to do with politics. I don't know what's going on. I don't care what's going on. And I'm not sure that's a wise choice or one that a Christian should pursue. I think that is errant. But I also believe when... Uh, we go to the other extreme, we can fall off the other side of the horse. And that's what uh, happened with folks like the zealots in Jesus' day. I mean, one of his disciples, Simon, was a zealot. And this was the party that were attempting to overthrow the Roman government. And they would ambush soldiers and kill them. And if they had bombs, they would have used them. They would resort to violence to get rid of Rome. I mean, there are people on the extreme right today, maybe some militia groups that are ready to take up arms against our government or on the left uh, who are in this category, Bill Ayers and the, under, the uh, Weather Underground and folks like that that will use violence and just obsess on politics and thinks that, think that that's the solution, that's the answer. And some believers are there too. Where we're not oblivious, we're obsessed. And uh, we just look to government to solve our problems and be the savior. I think that both are wrong. And that's where, uh, in contrast to the fundamentalists, the mainline denominations went. And they just got enmeshed in 
politics in the late 1900s. The moral majority moved from fundamentalism over to this extreme, thinking we can go for political power. And when that happens, when the church goes too deeply into politics, power tends to corrupt. So I believe that either way, being unaware, uninformed, oblivious to politics is not the answer, nor is it to be obsessed with politics. Jesus advocates neither withdrawal nor obsession with this earthly kingdom. And so he completes his answer, and what he basically says is, okay, give what you owe to Caesar, but there's a limit. And that brings us to this point. When it comes to God and government, we'll see exciting and lasting change when we give ourselves to serving the eternal king. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in his saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. When's the last time you've ever seen a politician speaking to the press with such profundity that the press is silenced? That just doesn't happen. But we've seen politicians respond to a question that they've been asked and go on and on and on. And then we think, he didn't really answer that question. He dodged that. I mean, he didn't even come close to answering that question. And how does that make you feel? Angry, right? But these spies weren't angry. They were amazed. They weren't mad. They marveled at his answer because Jesus had put it back on them to realize, for they could realize they were the ones now responsible. If that denarius had Caesar's image on it, Go ahead and give it to him. But whose image do you have on you? They knew that their own scriptures said that they'd been created in the image of God. And so what did they owe to God? Themselves. Everything about themselves belonged to God. And that's what they were to render to God. And I believe that's true for every one of us as believers. We realize We've been created by God. We've been redeemed by God. We owe him everything. And we're to offer ourselves, as the Apostle Paul said, as living sacrifices to the Lord. And our first priority shouldn't be the politics of this kingdom, but of his kingdom. He said to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And we, we need to give ourselves to going and making disciples, just as Jesus gave us that great commission. Now, that's what the church is to be about, evangelism and discipleship and prayer and the word. And as I've already said, I'm not suggesting we withdraw from the political realm or be uninformed. In fact, here's something you need to think about. The gospel isn't only intended to save souls. It's intended to redeem a culture. And when lives are changed, that affects every facet of a culture, including the political realm, that seeks to address oppression, injustice, racism, suffering, and poverty. And when lives are really transformed by the king of kings, then there will be involvement and informed involvement that affects every facet of our culture. So we're to honor 
Caesar, but don't give him what was only intended to be given to God, and that is worship, devotion, and ultimate obedience. Chuck Colson has long been a hero of mine, and he, he was uh, special counsel to President Nixon back in the early 1970s, got caught up in that whole Watergate scandal, and uh, was sentenced to go to prison, where he served, I think, 19 months. But before he went to prison, he came to Christ. And the media said, oh, that's a jailhouse conversion. That won't last. But it did. And he came out of prison, and he formed Prison Fellowship, which affected prison reform in North and South America, various parts of the world, and is still flourishing uh, and doing an amazing work. But he wrote prolifically. He wrote so many books uh, from his position of having been in government and then in Christian ministry, and he wrote with such wisdom. And one of the books that I've almost worn out through the decades is called Kingdoms in Conflict. And in that book, uh, he, he makes this statement. Governments, with rare exceptions, seek to expand their power beyond the mandate to restrain evil, preserve order, and promote justice. Most often, they do this by venturing into religious or moral areas. Does transgendered bathrooms sound familiar? <laughs> or when uh, health care is mandated to Christian organizations where they're uh, ordered to uh, provide birth control uh, or for abortions? I mean, government in the last several years has again and again and again stepped over and across the line of the First Amendment, religious freedom, and, and imposing their will against the conscience of believers. Sometimes the right thing to do is to resist Caesar. That was true in the first century and it's true in the 21st century. Peter and John, when they were called in by the authorities, and those were, those were uh, religious authorities, but they served politically under Rome there in Jerusalem, and they were ordered no longer to teach or preach in the name of Jesus. And they responded, amazingly, they stood up and said, well, you be the judge, but we must obey God rather than men. And that's a principle that is true for all believers today. Francis Schaeffer was another Christian philosopher, a great and outstanding thinker of the last century. And he wrote many books that are worth considering, too. He came here for a seminar in the uh, early 80s with the Surgeon General and along with Francis Schaeffer's wife, Edith. And, and, and they were talking about what was coming down the pike in America. And they talked about, yes, abortion has just made, been made legal, but guess what? Uh, infanticide is going to become reality where children that are unwanted are going to be allowed to die. And they, they were true. That was a prophecy that came true, is happening. And euthanasia, uh, physician-assisted suicide and those kinds of things. Well, boy, they saw that coming, warned us against it. And uh, in his book, A Christian Manifesto, this is what Francis Schaeffer said. If there is no place for civil disobedience, then government has been made autonomous. And as such, it has been put in the place of the living God. When government says this is right, this is wrong, and it counters to what God says, and we obey government rather than God, 
we've put government in the place of God. And, and Schaefer said, we need to be willing as Christians to disobey and be willing to pay the consequences. Those first century Christians were, and many of them went into the Colosseum to face the lions. Well, we won't, and we aren't there yet, but there are implications for disobedience. Blind obedience to Caesar or government makes government God. Now, there are many in America today that believe government has all the answers. And, and if we just have more government, all our problems will be solved. Colson said this, This political illusion springs from a diminishing belief in God and the growth of big government. What people once expected from the Almighty, they now expect from the Almighty bureaucracy. That's a bad trade for anyone, but for the Christian, it's rank idolatry. Dee and I have been reading through the Psalms, and Friday morning we came to Psalm 146 and read this. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. It's true. No politician is going to be the Savior. No party has what we need for salvation. So in this political quagmire, where is a Christian to look? To God alone, who is our salvation and who is worthy of our trust. To the one who is the king, to the one who is the son of God, to the one who truly is the great high priest, it's to him that we should look. Should we be informed and involved politically? I believe we absolutely should. But never giving it priority over the kingdom that we've been entrusted with. We should pray and pray for this election and pray for wisdom and pray for our nation. We should definitely vote. We should support issues and candidates that we believe are going to most effectively carry out what we believe God's will is. We shouldn't withdraw. We should not despair because despair is sin. That means we're trusting in government or politicians rather than in the one who sits upon the throne of the universe. No room for despair among believers. We have hope. We know the end of the story. After the TGIF service, someone uh, on the lanai said to me, well, someone said to me, I kept waiting for Pastor Ron to get to the point and tell us who to vote for. <laughs> Believe it or not, I do have an opinion. But much more, in fact, infinitely more important then my opinion as to who we ought to vote for in this coming election is my conviction of who we should follow, and that's King Jesus. The real question that they were asking Jesus that day, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not, hearkening back to Judas the Galilean is, are you a revolutionary like Judas? And Jesus' answer was, yes, I'm a revolutionary, but not like you are thinking of. My revolution transforms lives and out of that changes a culture. It's very real. It does affect all these issues that government is concerned about, but in a much more dramatic and long-lasting way. And that's why we wouldn't want to substitute commitment to this kingdom for a commitment to his kingdom. We want to serve a revolution 
that will last and bring lasting change. And it is amazing and wonderfully exciting. And so Jesus is saying to us, I believe, yeah, don't, don't withdraw from the kingdom of this world. Don't isolate. Don't be oblivious. Don't be obsessed with it either. Join the revolution that will make a lasting difference. Follow me, Jesus says. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for the opportunity that we have to live in a free nation where we actually get to affect decisions in the kingdom of this world. But help us never forget that we're citizens of your greater kingdom and that that's from whence we should get our direction and uh, our, our strength for this journey. So guide us, we pray. Guide us as a nation. Guide us as a people. Guide us as the church in this nation and as individuals seeking to fulfill your will as citizens, yes, of this country, but of your kingdom, first and foremost. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.